Recording in progress. Good evening. I'd like to call to order the Shoreline Planning Commission public hearing for Thursday, October 19th, 2023. First item is roll, uh, roll call. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Brinson. Here. Commissioner Callahan. Here. Commissioner Galuska. Present. Commissioner Lynn. Here. Commissioner Mosier. Here. Vice Chair Wamashonje. Uh, present. And Chair Sager. Here. Thank you. Thank you. Next item is approval of the agenda. Does anybody wish to make any changes to the agenda? Okay, the agenda is approved. Next is approval of the minutes from October 5th, 2023. Does anybody have any changes? Okay. That brings us to general public comment. Ms. Hoxma, is there anybody signed up for general public comment tonight? I have, I have no one signed up for tonight, thank you. Okay. That brings us to the public hearing portion of the evening. Tonight's public hearing is regarding the Transportation Concurrency Development Code Amendments. The purpose for the hearing is to obtain public testimony and for the commission to develop a recommendation to forward to the city council on this topic. I would like to remind everyone that we are engaged in the public, public's business and an appropriate level of decorum should be maintained at all times. All comments should be directed through the chair. Only one person will have the floor at a time. Applauding, booing, or disrupting of the process will not be tolerated. Comments are limited to three minutes per person testifying or five minutes for someone representing the official position of an agency or city-recognized organization. When the clerk calls your name for either in-person or remote comment, please state your name and city of residence for the record before you begin. The process for the public hearing is as follows. The city will present its staff report. The commission will be given an opportunity to ask clarifying questions. Individuals will be given an opportunity to testify. After all testimony has been received, the commission will begin deliberation and may ask questions of the staff or individuals who testified. The, the commission will vote and then close the public hearing. I now wish to open the public hearing. We are ready for our presenters. Yes, good evening, Planning Commission. First time in front of you, uh, Jeff Raker, Senior Transportation Planner in the Transportation Division of Public Works. So excited to come to you and speak to this important issue for the city. Um, we're here to talk about uh, updates to how we approach our transportation concurrency. It's a requirement under uh, the Growth Management Act uh, to ensure that the level of service in our transportation service meets those needs of uh, the community and, and the trip generation associated. Um, we have been in front of you prior to this uh, in uh, 2022 regarding the adoption of the transportation element to discuss the incorporation of policies that advance multimodal level of service as a uh, proposed approach. And the Planning Commission uh, was uh, in contact within the over the course of 2021 through 2022 as part of that process. And this initiative now is to advance that and actually operationalize multimodal concurrency activities at the city. Um, I have um, uh, Kendra Brayland, who I've been working very close with and blanked on her name for a moment, at Fair and Piers, um, 
and she's uh, serves the consultant uh, that is supporting our efforts on this, um, and has a lot of experience with the approach in amongst peer cities. And so we've uh, enlisted their support in conducting research and supporting the updates to the concurrency approach, um, as well as advancing a multimodal concurrency tool development that's been uh, happening over the summer. Um, as a sort of an uh, uh, update on the process to date, um, there are draft code edits um, to commerce that were submitted. We submitted a public hearing notice on the 4th. Um, there is a determination on significance to submit it on the 5th, and today we are here before you for the public hearing, a proposal of staff recommendations, um, any public comment, and then discussion and ideally recommendation, uh, or sorry, I should say, and at the discretion of the commission recommendation to council um, regarding your position on uh, advancing this uh, for discussion and approval to city council on the 27th of November and then action on ordinance, the associated ordinance uh, will be taken on the 11th of uh, December. With that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Kendra for a description of the, the work to date and uh, the, the approach that we're recommending. All right. Well, good evening, commissioners. Again, my name is Kendra Breland um, and excited to work with Jeff. It's been a long week, so I want to acknowledge that. Um, so before I kind of dive into kind of the essence of our proposal, I, I wanted to kind of share with you some key terminology. And it's really important to kind of have those key terms um, as these are just really central to this topic. So first of all, vehicular level of service policies. So these are comp plan policies that measure how well a transportation um, system is performing from the perspective of a vehicle or a driver. Um, so we have, Shoreline has historically had these sorts of policies in its transportation elements. Um, Tends, you know, typically we're focusing on how long a vehicle is waiting on average at an intersection. So the city has some standards um, for different facilities, and so we're able to look at those and, ident and identify whether or not the intersection is providing sufficient capacity or not. So that's um, a type of standard that's been in the city's plans historically, and it is a part of your transportation element today as a part of the 2022 updates. Um, Another key topic is multimodal level of service policies. So these are comp plan policies that measure how well a transportation system is performing for other modes of transportation. So that might be people walking, biking, accessing transit. And so um, your 2022 comprehensive plan um, really kind of took a step to evolve uh, beyond your prior transportation elements to really incorporate these policies. So we're thinking holistically about your transportation system. What does it mean to provide adequate accommodations for people walking? What does it mean to provide adequate accommodations for people biking and accessing transit? And so those are all a part of your new transportation element. If we can go to the next slide. Um, I'll start with a couple of, finish up with a couple other key terms. Um, so concurrency. Um, so concurrency is, first of all, a, a state requirement. Um, and concurrency standards are really the requirement that new, trans, that new development does not cause level of service um, for public facilities to fall beyond, 
fall below established standards in a jurisdiction's comp plan. So essentially the idea here is that as you permit development within your community, you're maintaining the level of service standards that you adopted in your transportation plan um, and in your comprehensive plan, excuse me. And that's actually been something that's been in place since 1990 under the Growth Management Act. Um, so again, the city has historically had level of service standards for intersections, and so the concurrency program has really just kind of looked at those intersections, how they're operating, and that's how you've met, measured concurrency. Um, but as we shared, um, and as you updated in your 2022 transportation element, you adopted a much more robust and holistic approach to, or to level of service, so a multimodal approach. So concurrency, we need to kind of reapproach to align with your new transportation element. Um, so multimodal concurrency is an updated approach to concurrency that considers all modes. And we'll get into it in a few slides here, but essentially what it's doing is it's measuring that new development not, cannot generate more person trips than um, can be accommodated um, based on what you have in your multimodal transportation system. And we're measuring that based on the projects that you've constructed. So that could be bike lanes, that could be um, sidewalks, that could be new intersections and new lanes. Um, and as well, not just the, the, the projects you have on the ground today, but also those projects that you have funded in your next six-year capital improvement program. So the last key term I wanted to defer, uh, define here is a person trip. I mentioned that. Person trip is just simply a one-way journey uh, by one person from an origin to destination. So whether, when you're going from your home to a commercial location, whether you're driving, whether you're walking, whether you're biking, all of that is a person trip. So we'll go to the next slide. Um, so why multimodal concurrency? Um, few things. One, your current concurrency system that you have is just based on vehicle trip capacity. Uh, it doesn't match current policy, and quite frankly, it's outdated. Um, and the reason that it's outdated, this year uh, the state legislature passed House Bill 1181, um, which requires that concurrency systems be multimodal. So really evolving your concurrency system and what we're proposing tonight um, is to align with your updated transportation element, but at a more fundamental level, it's also to align with the new expectations um, from the state. And so, um, this kind of new system that we're looking at, it is incorporating your vehicle level of service standards. It's also looking to your multimodal policies and how they have informed your multimodal project list that is a part of your 2022 transportation element. Um, so city staff is um, recommending that uh, we develop a multimodal concurrency system to align with the new transportation element and state law. Um, so next slide, just um, just to kind of show you, there's actually lots of peers out there. Um, actually, Redmond has had a multimodal concurrency system for more than a decade. Um, City of Olympia adopted it. City of Bellevue recently adopted a program. Uh, Bothell is working towards adopting a multimodal program. So um, just to kind of share on this slide that you're certainly not alone. Um, in this approach. So if we'll go to the, the next slide here, um, wanted to talk about how the proposed system works. So first of all, it provides capacity for all types of multimodal infrastructure that is built and funded by your system. So um, just looking at the supply as you 
fund and construct new sidewalks, new bike lanes, new transit access facilities, uh, new lanes or intersection improvements, all of those are associated with a person trip capacity that's been established based on your updated transportation element. Um, and then on the demand side of the ledger, um, as you approve development as a community, as you bring in new households, new commercial space, new industrial space, we've associated those uh, land uses also with a person trip demand. And so really, this new system would assess concurrency on a pass-fail basis. If person trip capacity um, that you're providing through the projects that you're constructing and that you're, you're funding exceeds the demands of proposed development that's been approved, then concurrency is met. And so we'll go over to kind of, I think what is my last slide, Jeff, um, just to kind of show kind of what a kind of a snapshot of how this system will look. From a practical standpoint, this program would be administered through an Excel-based tracking system run by city staff. Um, so staff would enter as development proposals come in, staff would enter the characteristics of a proposed development, whether by type of land use, the size of the development, and the spreadsheet would automatically calculate the person trips of demand. Um, and then also, kind of concurrently, um, staff would be tabulating the number of person trips of supply um, as transportation projects are added to the six-year capital improvement program. Um, so this allows the city to proactively track supply and demand uh, to determine whether the concurrency standard is met. Um, so I think that's about it. Happy to go into more details if there's interest, and I'll, I'll pass it back to Jeff. Yeah, so I just wanted to go over, so what the staff recommendation before you is, is to approve, um, uh, to recommend that uh, the commission uh, submits their recommendation for approval to city council to adopt the proposed concurrency program changes. Um, they're embodied in an ordinance number 997 that will be before council. Um, and this, uh, within those code amendments, uh, is an adjustment of the concurrency program from that vehicular base level of service to the multimodal concurrency approach. Um, adop adopts the associated uh, municipal code amendments, which include some definition shifts um, to associated with this, as well as um, connection to sort of the the uh, the uh, the check or or sort of um, uh, definition of how this pass-fail system works within the code as well. Um, and we've set an effective date of March 15th to coincide with amendments to the transportation impact fee program as well as the building code that will be occurring in a similar time frame. And uh, additionally, it gives us some time as staff to get used to having the PCD staff get used to uh, the application of the tool uh, and the toolkit uh, you just saw on the last slide. Um, so a, a note is that Changes to the impact fees and the building codes are outside the purview of the Planning Commission review. Those are focused on council because they fall outside of uh, Title 20. Um, the next steps um, are for council action to take place uh, prior to the year end, um, ideally. And staff requests the Planning Commission advance the following tonight, um, listen to any public comment, um, have a discussion, and, and we're happy to answer any questions or, or considerations you have and uh, formulate a recommendation to council on the ordinance. Um, that will be forwarded on to city council for discussion in November 27th and action on December 11th. Thank you. Um, 
Does anybody have any clarifying questions they would like to ask before we proceed? Vice Chair Ramachandji. Uh, my question is, uh, when we look at VLTs, you are really prioritizing vehicular traffic. When we look at that mode, that policy prioritized vehicular traffic. Now, when we talk of multimodal traffic, what are we prioritizing? Well, I'll, I'll start with that. And Jeff, you may have something to add. Um, what I would say is that, first of all, this system considers all of the projects in your financially constrained project list for transportation element. So it really prioritizes the types of investments that you prioritize within your transportation element. So I think, you know, big themes, of course, there, as you know, were complete streets, um, projects like the 148th uh, pedestrian and bike bridge. So I would say to the extent that your investments are prioritizing capacity for all modes, I would say this system prioritizes all modes. Um, but more fundamentally, a person trip, a vehicle trip is the same as a pedestrian trip is the same as a bicycle trip. So what it allows the city to do as they, as you add projects onto your CIP, all of that capacity counts. So it's not that just vehicle capacity counts. Now um, you can consider the capacity enhancements that are offered for any mode, including vehicle capacity. Uh, may I suggest uh, maybe pedestrian uh, prioritization, uh, if we could consider that, uh, given that when we look, when we prioritized vehicles, if you look at the intersection, the signal prioritizes vehicle before the pedestrian push button walk. Won't it be safer if you prioritize the, the pedestrian at that intersection? So if we are thinking of a change in mode and thought process, then it looks to me that if we are building an increasing home capacity and increasing at least walking traffic capacity, then, and we are thinking of making shoreline more livable, then probably prioritizing, while we think of multimodal, prioritizing pedestrian traffic might be something to consider. So here we kind of say we have a tool that tracks that, that meets the letter of the law, but the output is really very important also. Well, Commissioner, I'd like to start by answering your question and then I see that uh, Kendra Daninsky is on and yes. I'm sure she has something to share. Um, the one thing I would say is that from, from my standpoint, just to directly answer your question, it is the city's choices in what you choose to fund that really does that priority. So if pedestrian improvements are your highest priority, then those are the sorts of projects that should be funded on your six-year CIP. And this system really doesn't get in the way of that. It allows you to choose what your investments are, and it's really just recording and tracking that capacity from a from a from more of a just a, a tracking standpoint. But Ms. Dadinsky might have more to say. Yeah, you, you kind of hit it. So this this program is not inherently the thing that is telling you how to invest your money or how to how to prioritize the various modes per se. It's just collecting on their behalf. And then we as staff and council and whoever else is is uh, sort of contributing to how our city moves forward. 
uh, can be a part of how that gets prioritized moving forward in, in the form of capital projects um, uh, with, with some caveats there. But um, in terms of your underlying sentiment, I totally agree that um, you know we do need to do a better job prioritizing pedestrians, especially in these areas that are densifying and where we are hoping to you know, really help people uh, be more comfortable and, and less delayed on foot. Um, we can have uh, certainly a, a much more dynamic and nuanced offline conversation, and I'd, I'd certainly welcome it um, in terms of the impact to signal uh, timing. Um, there are all kinds of things that we are going to be doing and have done um, to, to sort of change the dynamic at least, or move the dial slightly, I would say. Um, but there's a lot at stake uh, in terms of um, just in terms of regulations and what what goes into signal timing in and of itself, um, and you know more more really uh, realistically just how people what what the vast majority of the public is how they are traveling today uh, and understanding that that has to shift over time, but um, what the implications would be to you know shifting large swaths of, of timing uh, at a signalized intersection. Um, from vehicles to pedestrians, what that would look like and how that would play out. Um, but I, I would very much welcome a conversation. Thank you. All right, uh, clarifying questions, anybody else? Commissioner Galuska. Uh, when you're talking about the uh, trip generation, uh, would that be coming out of the ITED manual? Say it once more. When you're talking about the number of trips generated by development, would that just be You'd just be reading out of the ITED manual. Oh, that's all. I'll take that question. Um, so, it the ITE manual uh, does provide a trip generation for a vast number of uses. One thing that we are doing is we are calibrating that to a person trip, yeah. and those person trip calibrations come from local travel survey data. Okay, uh, and then the fee charge would be a GMA-based impact fee. So under the impact fee program, um, yes, we are proposing a GMA-based impact fee program, and that's established by a rate study. Concurrency is different. Um, so it's, it's funny, they're often um, conflated. <laughs> they're, they're very related, but they're not exactly the same thing. So concurrency is really a, do you have the capacity to support this development? It's a yes, no question. Uh, what GMA impact fees do is they provide a funding mechanism to fund many of those projects. Yes, so I guess what I'm getting at is so if I come in with a new development, rather than having an LOS study done, you would just say, well, you've, if we need, if, if we're out of trips in the, in the bank, you would need to pay, pay for the trips that are now owed. And, but that wouldn't, that would, that wouldn't be under, under the GMA impact fee, that would be kind of a separate program. I'm going to let Kendra speak to that. Yeah. Uh, Kendra, would you like to address that question? Yeah, so so again, we're I think um, when we're talking about these two different things in terms of like the, the TIF itself and then the underlying idea of concurrency, which is um, an idea of, of sort of a bank account, if you will, um, so very closely related, but uh, just understanding we have enough capacity in our system to permit development, right? And so when they come to us for a permit, um, there's a couple of potential uh, outcomes. So one is that they're small enough in terms of their impact uh, 
to where we can use the standard template uh, that you're describing via TIF to certify them essentially to, to give them a concurrency check as long as they pay their fees. Um, but, but understanding that there's enough essentially capacity in the bank account to issue that permit. Um, for larger scale developments, we because our transportation element and master plan didn't study every single arterial intersection in the city, we studied the constrained ones, uh, we are opting to err on the conservative side and understand local localized impacts uh, as best we can through TIAs, through the continuation of TIAs. Um, however, I think the scoping of those TIAs is going to be more refined as we move on in into the future compared to how we, we did it before for, for various reasons. But but to get to your, your, your question, um, a TIA transportation impact analysis will still be required in some cases to understand localized impacts because we didn't study every single spot in the city. We also want to understand how like driveways work, you know, like making sure that uh, a large development driveway isn't unduly impacting the road or intersection that it's near. Um, so there's going to be a continued need for, you know, some some basic traffic analysis and, and essentially a project proving that their impacts to the transportation system um, you know, can can hold up. And, and kind of related to that, so how do you, when you, if you have a lot of projects in one part of town and a lot of like a, a lot of capital projects uh, for, under your TIP, how if you have a development in a different part of town, is that just something you just have to kind of fix every year when you update the TIP? Is just fix those trips and see where? The, but you wouldn't do that on a project by project basis if all the development is in let's say Richmond Beach and then all your all your projects are in another part of town. You just have to every year come back and update that list. Andrew, you can go ahead and tackle that one if you okay. like. Okay. <laughs> um, so I think what I would say is that I think Kendra kind of expressed that there's there's a variety of mechanisms and tools that the city has at its disposal. Um, so this one thing that I'm really clear with you know, kind of every council or commission that I work with um, is that concurrency is not a silver bullet. It's not going to answer all of your questions. Um, what this concurrency program is doing at a very high, simple level is making sure that you're keeping up with development at a, you know, citywide broad scale. You're continuing to keep pace in terms of providing that multimodal infrastructure. What it's not doing, and that you've noted, is that it's not necessarily guaranteeing that an intersection in a certain part of town or a certain area is absolutely perfect. Um, so, and those, you know, th this program does not guarantee that you won't have traffic issues. That's that's not a promise here. Um, so, what you know, the two other mechanisms. One is that Kendra mentioned for those larger projects, city is doing traffic studies. In some cases, they are going to require. Um, mitigation of larger developments. So that's that's one way that the city is attacking it. Um, the second is, again, through those CIP investments. If all your development's occurring in one part of the city, um, it would definitely behoove the city to start thinking about reorienting its transportation investments to also be in that part of the city. So this system doesn't guarantee that. It doesn't drive that. It leaves it more um, to the discretion of our elected officials and city staff to, to keep good monitoring of that. Well, thank you. Anybody else? Okay, thank you. 
Uh, that brings us to the public comment portion. Ms. Hoxma, has anybody signed up to uh, give public com uh, comment? We have no one signed up or, or on waiting. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Uh, that brings us to then the commission's chance to deliberate, to ask questions. We've kind of done some of that already. <laughs> Does anybody else have any comments or questions? Yes, Commissioner I have Brinson. One more clarifying question. It just occurred to me. We were using the bank account analogy. What happens if the bank account is empty when a development project comes in? You would fall out of concurrency. Um, one of the beauties of this program is that you can track it, you can monitor it, mm -hmm. and you can see it coming. And so, again, there's no promise that this program is going to keep you out of being unconcurrent. Um, that can occur today in your current program. That's happened in lots of cities. Um, but this will give you a way to be able to monitor it, forecast it, and reorient your investments if you need to. So it's a pass-fail for the city on concurrency. It's not a pass-fail for the specific development, meaning that development could still move forward. I'm just trying to understand. No, really it is. It is. No. Yeah, go for it, Kendra. Yeah, no, I, we can't issue permits if we fall out of concurrency. So okay. essentially it puts us into moratorium uh, territory. Got it. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes, Commissioner Mosher. So actually, I guess related to that, so when we're determining, again, the bank account, are we looking at the land use map as the highest and best used? As, so if a permit is meeting all of the codes, it should be it's allowed, or even if it meets the code, if we're out of, out of money in the bank account, then it's still in the moratorium. Like, just since we have a housing bill coming up and there's a bunch of like, low things that could be high things, so potentially those would, could be prohibited. Do you mean the middle housing bill? Is that what you're talking about? I, either middle housing or if you just think of like existing shopping centers that could become seven-story buildings, like even if they met the letter of the land use, if we were out of out yeah. of concurrency, then they could be prohibited still. Yeah, yeah so, uh, you know, the, the underlying zoning designation of highest and best use does not guarantee that you uh, can meet concurrency, certainly. So part of Part of meeting concurrency is the TIF collection and the city being able to deliver projects that um, increase person trips, right? So that builds the bank account. That's a deposit, if you will. Um, and so all of the various sidewalk projects and other kind of large scale capital projects that we have in the pipeline right now will contribute to the bank account in giving us credit. Um, but in terms of, you know, if if things just go bonkers and things develop quicker than we anticipated and middle housing comes in and that's just going nuts too. Uh, yeah, it's very possible that, it, you know, we could fall out of alignment eventually. Um, so the underlying zoning note is not a guarantee that you are meeting the concurrency standard. Um, the, the concurrency standard is in place to ensure that the zoning that you've kind of adopted or, or that you're, you've moved forward with uh, is, is acceptable, right? That you can accommodate the growth. It's sort of the inverse uh, relationship there. And then furthermore, the TIA process, the transportation impact uh, assessment or uh, analysis process further sort of um, provides clarity on the impacts to a localized region or area. And, and they may need to mitigate depending on the outcomes of, of those studies, I should say. Thank you. Anybody else? 
All right. Uh, I believe we need a motion. Would somebody like to make a motion on this? Uh, thank you, Commissioner Callahan. <laughs> uh, I move to recommend that City Council approve the concurrency program changes in Ordinance Number 997, uh, as written in Attachment A of the Staff Report, dated October 19th, 2023, and for staff to forward that recommendation uh, of approval to City Council. Thank you. Is there a second? I second that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, we will vote. <clears throat> Ms. Hoeksma, will you call the uh, roll for a vote? <laughs> What's the All right, Chair Sager. Yes. Commissioner Mosier. Yes. Yes, sorry. Thank you, sorry. Commissioner Galuska. Aye. Commissioner Brinson. Aye. Commissioner Callahan. Aye. Commissioner Lynn. Aye. And Chair, uh, Vice Chair Omashande. Yes. Thank you. Aye. Thank you. Uh, we will now close the public hearing. Thank you, Commissioner. Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much. All right. That brings us to our study items. We have two tonight. Uh, the first one is going to be ground floor commercial commercial development code amendments. Chair and Commissioners, good to be back uh, with you this evening to get another look at the Ground Floor Commercial uh, Development Code Amendments. Um, joined uh, again uh, with Planning Manager Andrew Bauer, of course, who you know and uh, who you know as well now, Patrick Doherty, our consultant who has been leading us in this work. Um, we've got a few updates and, um, and some maps that we can look at together. And uh, I think you've seen these in the, obviously in the packet. Um, but we're looking forward to getting a chance to hear your feedback and, and direction and, uh, and where you'd like us to go as we move forward through this. So I think with that, I'll probably just turn right over to Patrick. All right, good evening, Commission. Thanks for having me again. Um, and again, I just, you know, people, we'll just jump in, but I'll, I'll lead and they'll jump in when I fail to say something important. <laughs> so we'll just go to the first slide then, I guess after the title slide there. And some of this, of course, is for anybody who may be following online or at home, you know, stuff that you know. Uh, but as you know, to start that off, this was initially presented last month on the 21st of September. Um, and the background, again, of why we're here is 
as you know, in 2020, a pilot set of regulations were put in place for ground floor commercial requirements in the North City and Ridgecrest neighborhoods. Um, a lot of development has happened, and there are 11,000 units of multifamily housing built or in the pipeline citywide, and uh, many buildings, of course, majority of them not having the ground floor commercial or non-residential space. So this past June, the city council did adopt the interim ordinance that requires ground floor commercial um, citywide. That's, that's an interim or ordinance that expires in December, on the 13th of December. Um, and it should be noted, and I know Nate will jump in and say this if I don't, that that, that was uh, you know, a bit of a broad brush approach to addressing the issue, applying the regulations uh, not in a fine-tuned way, but just broad brush around the city as kind of a, you know, hold things steady for a while and let's take this time to bring in the permanent regulations, which is what's in front of you now. Um, so the next slide we can talk about, and these are images you saw the last time of mixed-use buildings in the city, and that's what we're looking towards. Um, the interim regulations, again, just so you can be reminded, um, do allow all of the underlying, uh, excuse me, all the uses that the underlying commercial zone would allow except for these uses listed there. Um, the parking is required currently in the interim ordinance at one space per 400 square feet. Um, buildings get an eight foot uh, height bonus for complying with the ground floor commercial. And for anybody watching, and I know you all know this, um, GFC is my little PowerPoint abbreviation for ground floor commercial, just to take up less space. Um, and then there's a 10-foot height bonus and a 5% hardscape increase for restaurant-ready space. Um, the average depth is 30 feet with a minimum of 20 feet. And um, con contrary to the North City and Ridgecrest requirement, which is 18-foot minimum floor height, the citywide one in the interim ordinance is 12 feet. So that's a big difference, and we'll talk about that uh, again. So last time we met, you had uh, a few issues that, uh, or let me just put it this way, we presented several issues and I will summarize very briefly the kind of comments we got from you. And then later we'll show how we responded to those in the, the way that we proposed the amendments now. So um, one basic thing was just using the term non-residential versus commercial. It's very easy to say commercial, but in code language it's better to have that broader term that allows some other things that aren't purely commercial and you all seem to agree to that. We introduced this new concept of primary and secondary commercial corridors basically based on the principal and minor arterials as mapped in the transportation plan versus all the other streets that may be zoned commercial. And the reason for that was to apply the fullest extent of the ground floor non-residential requirements on the primary corridors and have a lesser requirement on the secondary corridors. Um, and you seem to be uh, concur with that, but raised some questions and wanted to know whether it made sense to consider extending the primary level a little ways from the primary corridors or not. So we've done some research into that and we'll share that with you. Um, and then on the primary corridors, uh, this is uh, the same as the current code standards. That would be 75% of the ground floor non-residential um, and then the secondary corridor would be a lower amount which we had uh, talked about 60% last time, and you'll see that in the code this time. Um, we talked about the required depth basically being fine at that 30-foot average depth. That seems to be somewhat consistent in the region, but maybe allowing a little greater flexibility at 15 feet absolute minimum while still meeting the 30-foot average versus 20. Um, so that was something you seem to agree makes some sense. On the height bonus, um, 
this was <laughs> get to be a little bit complicated, but I think you may recall that if we're re going to um, require 15 foot minimum height versus 18, instead of allowing the eight foot extra, which went with the 18, then how about only five feet extra going with the 15? The notion was that if it weren't required to be something special like 18 or 12 or 15, the 10 foot was the sort of standard floor height. So anything above that is, is more and should possibly offer a bonus. So when it was 18, the bonus is eight. We're thinking that 15 makes sense for a minimum required height and therefore five feet would be the bonus. And so then um, you seem to agree with that. And then when we discuss grocery stores, uh, which were not in the existing code, but are a preferred use, it's certainly a require, uh, um, quite an amenity in, the, in an urbanizing environment, uh, that can be a variable height. There are some grocery stores that will be as much as 20 feet. Some can fit in 15, 16, you don't know. So instead of predetermining that for uh, the developers, we said, well, they can go through the administrative design review process and propose, based on their plans, what height of grocery store space, and then therefore get the bonus if they need it or want it, based on that corresponding height above 10 feet. And you seem to agree with that as well. Uh, regarding the facade transparency, this is similar to the amount. So you've got the 75% um, amount of ground floor residential, then how much of that should be transparent? So 60% along the facade should be transparent on the, six, on the 70, where it's 75% requirement. Uh, but in uh, prior years, there was a town center TC zone requirement of 60% and then measured from 30 inches to eight feet above sidewalk. And it made a lot of sense to resuscitate that. That's a very specific requirement and, make, and, and it's a good one. And so we proposed that last time and, and you seem to concur with that. Then we introduced another new issue, which was the live work residential. And there was a fair amount of discussion about that. Um, this was again, um, in response to concerns, not just in Shoreline, really all around the region, uh, again, in those secondary frontages where commercial may not currently be viable. And, and sometimes you've got large sites where um, there could be the principal uh, corridor and not only side streets, but even back streets. If some of the sites are large enough that you end up with another arterial behind it or not, not even you know, a small level street. And does it make sense to have uh, truly commercial or non-residential required all the way around and at what level? So we introduced this notion of live-work residential, still requiring the, the sort of commercial box, having to meet the minimum height, the minimum depth, uh, the storefront type system, you know, that being that kind of construction type, but the occupancy being allowed to be live-work um, for an initial period. And so we thought uh, when we discussed last time that perhaps five years made sense. What was confusing, I think, in our last discussion was we didn't mean that uh, we would allow people to occupy them as live-work residential units for five years and then kick them out. <laughs> what we meant was that we would permit through whatever the final permit is for a residential unit, the occupancy permit or the building permit, um, for five years. And that could potentially go on for many years. And as the commercial market demand increases in the city for more commercial type space, office spaces and other things, then that would transition. Again, remembering these buildings will be there for 75 plus years. So there's a lot of time we're talking about that isn't rooted in today's exact experience. So um, we, we thought about that and you'll see that in the code that we're proposing a five-year period. Um, then uh, regarding parking, again, something that went through a lot of discussion, uh, you seem to be uh, supportive of the notion of exempting um, 
the ground floor non-residential space from parking requirements. We analyzed a few buildings and, and uh, staff was saying that um, a lot of the buildings that are sort of the large but still moderate sized mixed-use buildings have about 3,500 to 4,500 square feet of not of commercial or non-residential. That's about eight to 10 spaces that we're talking about. So when we shared this issue with you, uh, one of the issues that seemed to resonate well was the sharing of the parking resource as opposed to this very distinct uh, residential parking is over here and there's a gate and then they have to provide a separate amount of commercial parking that during the daytime hours maybe it makes some sense to share and over time again as we think about these buildings aging and the and the community urbanizing and people using different sources of, of transportation that it maybe it made sense to exempt that those eight to ten spaces that's all we're talking about now that doesn't mean that um, certain developers with certain tenants in mind or these grocery stores that we may see or even restaurants may decide no I need some spaces and they'll still do it anyway um, you did raise concern over ADA parking and loading spaces and that's something that I think initially we said even that evening and continue to say that that as these sites are built and then the street frontages are built out according to the uh, plans that we can uh, liaise with the public works office or department and say hey let's make sure there's a loading space on that street frontage and an ADA space on that street frontage or, or both you know opposite so that's something that doesn't have to be required in the building but can be part of the street curbside uh, parking resource and then lastly I think it's lastly um, <clears throat> the fitness center was a an exemption um, in the current code that the we kind of called it commercial if it was open to the public if it's a fit excuse me if it's a fitness center associated with the multifamily and that's a bit of an enforcement headache and so it made sense to just allow that to stay outside of the commercial just be part of the multifamily and certainly if somebody proposes a public fitness center a regular you know LA fitness or whatever then that would meet the meet the requirement uh, and you seem to agree with that as well. So that summarizes your discussion. Um, now what we've done since, a big important thing, was two forms of public outreach. We had a public survey and we met with our development community stakeholders. So this is a very high level summary and you have more, you have all the detail actually in your packet, probably way too many pages of the actual survey detail. So let's go on to that. So for the public survey, I think there were 655, I might be up by a number, respondents, 65 of which were business owners, so that was good to get them as well. Uh, the residents, not business owners, just the residents, uh, did um, provide a lot of support for what we're talking about, and that was great. Um, they supported living and being in proximity to neighborhoods with a broad range of goods, services, and activities. Um, they really wanted to have and show a propensity to stay in shoreline for, for uh, accessing those activities. Um, what was really interesting to me was when we asked, how do you prefer, how would you see yourself um, uh, accessing um, commercial and other activities? Driving was not number one. It was other forms, uh, transit, walking, cycling, rideshare, drop off, that kind of thing. So that was great. Um, one, one thing that was interesting was we asked people, what are areas that you really like? And we also ask what areas you don't like. Sometimes the same places were showing up as the number one answers. <laughs> so that was interesting. But um, for the ones that they really liked, you can see some of the areas up there that are. And I think what's interesting is how different they are. The commonality, the common thread is they're urban type places with that sort of level of urbanity and walkability. But they're very different densities and very different scales. And that's kind of interesting. Um, what they didn't prefer was you know, drugs and crime and some social problems and vacant buildings, which I thought was real interesting. They made a point, not the business owners, not the developers, but the public saying they didn't like it when there's a vacant space. And this addresses a little bit what we were talking about before about having variable standards on the less viable streets. 
Then we go to the uh, business owners. Um, they had the same comment about wanting to be near uh, more active areas with lots of goods and services. Um, this was interesting. We sort of educated them a little bit. I say that lightly, but what, instead of just saying, would you like to pay less for parking or whatever, we said parking, providing parking in a new building is costly. And sometimes, if the market can support it, that cost will be passed on in the form of higher rent, maybe. So we said, if you had options of moving into a new space on the ground floor of a building that had dedicated parking, but you had to pay more, would you prefer that? Would you rather have a shared parking arrangement and pay just slightly more average rents? Or would you rather have no parking in the building and see it down the street or nearby and have lower rents? And the middle option received the highest number of uh, preferences, that this shared parking made sense to them if they didn't have to pay a much higher rent for dedicated parking. And again, their top areas were similar to um, the public's, or the residents, excuse me. And then less preferred areas are, um, as you can read, some of the things they didn't like. They didn't focus as much. The highest answers didn't focus as much on places as much as characteristics of places. But a few of them did overlap, just like with the residents. And then, um, oh, I guess there's a few more. How could we promote or incentivize ground floor commercial? And you can just, I won't read out loud all those things, but you can see some of the things that were offered in the write-ins. Um, some are not necessarily things we can easily do, but it's just important to see. You know, One of the last bullet there just reflects something we heard from the developers, is that the build-out costs are quite expensive building out um, tenant space in the ground floor commercial is expensive. So that's why they said that. And then at the, at the stakeholder meeting, we had, what, 20-something people between? Over 30. Over 30? Yeah. It was really, actually, my experience um, of doing that elsewhere. You guys have a very engaged community, so I was happy to see that there were over 30 people between in-person and online. And um, the other thing that was positive, well, it was all positive, is information, but it's a positive, I think, from my perspective, was how supportive most people there were of the notion of mixed-use development and ground floor residential. I mean, there were varying opinions on how much that should be and whether it should be a requirement or voluntary, but really, people said, this is the kind of areas we want to be in and be building. You know, we want it to be engaging mixed-use areas where our residents have a place to go and not just live there and then drive away. So that was nice to hear from the developers. They definitely chimed in about how, park, how expensive parking is <clears throat> and would like to see parking either not required or very little. Um, some were concerned about, and, and you'll see a direct code response in our drafts um, to this, about re providing the 75% ground floor non-residential on narrow lots because they said once you provided a driveway, if there isn't an option like an alley or something to get into the garage, and then the lobby and the, and the entry area, there's not 75% of the building left. So we have a response to that. Um, they liked the concept of primary and secondary furnishes, as we've talked about. Um, of course, there were some who think that it should be provided voluntarily and not required with incentives. Um, the height bonus, they said, and we've talked about this, is only, <clears throat> is only helpful in certain zones or instances. Some of the zones are, you have generous zoning here, and sometimes the height bonus isn't much of a bonus because it takes them out of out of the um, wood frame construction and then they can't use it. But some of the zones still have some uh, room for the height bonus. And certainly um, as development gets uh, more mature and, and land values go up, they may consider going into the uh, next higher building typology and then they could use the height bonus. Um, and they like the ability to seek departures through the administrative design review process. 
So I will summarize the code amendments uh, as quickly as I can. Some are very technical. I'm not going to go into detail because they were just cleaning up things, but and you've probably seen that in your packet. The first couple here are in the tables of uses, and they're basically just um, indexing the supplemental criteria appropriately. The P in the, in the table is a permitted, and then if it had an I, it means you need, to see, you need to look below at the criteria. And we had to add that for the different zones that the ground floor commercial is now required in, in these two areas, residential uh, uses and stationary uses. And apartment was used in stationary, whereas everywhere else is multifamily, so we struck out apartment and just put in multifamily. It's, and then we get into a little bit more substantive things. This is some of the meat of what we've talked about. So we extend these provisions throughout most of the zones, um, switching commercial to non-residential, disallowing parking um, from one of the uses. So right now, those uses you saw previously, adult uses and pawn shops and things, um, one of the things that was absent was just parking, so that parking does not become a, a use in the ground floor space. And you've seen that in some places, actually. And so that's now not allowed. Uh, this is the bullet allowing that live work um, and what we, what we decided to propose is that we allow up to 50% of what's required on those secondary streets. Remember, it was 60% on a secondary street. That up to 50% of that, so really 30%, up to 50% of that could be live work during the five-year period. So this is a response to the developers to say, okay, maybe 60% on secondary road uh, frontages sounds like a lot, but still you have the option, at least for the first five years, maybe longer, if council you know, wants to extend it, uh, to uh, occupy half of that with live work. Now, live work is still going to have to be um, shown in the plans of having that space behind the storefront that you walk into that is the work space. We can't dictate what they do there, but at least there's the office space or the place they throw pots or whatever they do, there is the space. And then everything else behind it or above it is the, is the, is the residential area. So at least it's built to uh, encourage and uh, that uh, live and work environment. Uh, exempting parking, mm -hmm. uh, I mean exempting the space from parking, excuse me. Um, clarifying height bonus five feet for just doing the ground floor commercial, 10 feet for restaurant, 20 feet for grocery store, um, up to 20 feet, and that would be negotiated through the design review. And then allowing um, an extra hard hardscape bonus for doing these things, but not to exceed 95%, so we're not 100% hardscape. Uh, in the dimensional requirements, there's some minor minor amendments here. Really, um, this was, it's so confusing to explain. It's almost just, this was a section that uh, refers to going to the very highest heights, like in the MUR um, 70, I think you can go to 140 as an exception. And, but it was above base height. And it's just clarifying that if you get these bonuses, the five foot bonus or the 10 foot bonus or the 20 foot bonus, that those are now the base height. So it's between the base height and whatever the highest height is they want to develop, you go through this process. It's, it's complicated, but it's, and there were some redundancies that we just removed. There were places in the code that referred back to what I just told you about in 465, and it was like, why do that? It's, it's already stated that it's required, so we just cleared up some redundancies. Then um, we get to other dimensions for development in commercial zones. Again, very minor amendments. This is a table with exceptions below it, exceptions six and seven. Again, talk about the height increase for multifamily buildings. Um, and um, I'm not going to go into the detail. You can read them, and if you have questions, we can talk about them. They're basically just um, clarifying um, the applicability of those provisions. Uh, then we go into a little bit more meat again of the issues. So, um, and 
This is, um, again, uh, just throughout the code, we're trying to bring in sync the ground floor commercial requirements because basically, if, if it's not a mixed use building, it's just a building, this is a commercial building, um, we thought, well, it should probably be similar. They should still have transparency and they should still have you know, a certain amount of uh, depth and that kind of thing. So we're in the AMUR zones, in the commercial zones, we're trying to make sure that it's uh, consistent. Um, so in, in the code, for example, it's uh, 12 feet, as I told you, uh, from now in the interim, and so we're raising it to 15, whereas it sounds like we're dropping it to 15 because in North City and Ridgecrest it's 18, but the citywide interim was 12. Uh, again, applying the, um, the uh, facade transparency of 60% on the main corridors and 45 on the lower secondary corridors. And then we, his, this is where we first introduce an exception that stems from the developer feedback, where we say, well, on lots that are 100 feet in width or narrower, that we have an exception, and we don't. Uh, you can you can exclude the width of any driveway um, into a garage from calculating the, this percentage, the 60 percent. Now they have to show that there's no other feasible place for the driveway to go. So if they've got a side street, if they're on a corner, or they've got an alley, then they'd have to gain their access from there. But if they're basically just a uh, mid-block narrow lot, and I think we want to encourage small-scale development as well, not just everything being mega-development, then they could show, hey, we have to have a driveway, and then they can negotiate a lower percentage. Um, and then we're back to, again, the, this is where in the code we would put in the 75% requirement on the major, on the primary arterials and 60% on the other streets, again, introducing the exception for narrower lots. Uh, we're discontinuing the fitness center exception that was in the the existing code, and uh, reducing the absolute minimum depth of the commercial to 15, but still requiring 30% average. And then another new thing, this came not so much out of our immediately <clears throat> past uh, developer engagement, but staff has learned through uh, projects that have been brought for permitting, that the public place requirement, if you know that in the code, there's a requirement that if you provide commercial, then there's a requirement for a certain percentage, or not a certain percentage, but a ratio uh, based on square footage of commercial, of square footage of public place accessible from the sidewalk. And that's great, but um, again, it's one of those things where you can end up having a public place requirement and then the GFC requirement and then what you need for your lobby and your entries and whatever, you could end up competing numbers. You may, it may go over 100% to comply with everything. So what we said was, well, if the, if the public place is integrated and uh, uh, cohesively designed with the ground floor residential. So in other words, let's say you can picture uh, ground, ground floor residential and then there's a public place, right? like a, into, you know, a modulation in and there's a public place. And there's doors and roll-up windows or whatever that, that activate that space from the flanking commercial so that it's potentially outdoor dining space or outdoor sales space or some kind. Of, then that space can count towards the depth that's required of the public, uh, excuse me, of the ground floor residential, as opposed to being totally separate and still trying to make up the 75%. I know it sounds complicated, but it does make a certain much sense, I think. And then again, here's a place where, again, it's 18 feet to 15, uh, reducing it down for the minimum height. It's confusing that, that in the code, there's places where it was 18 and places where it was 12. And so we're regular, we went up from 12 in one place and down from 18 in another place. And then um, you have a whole um, uh, litany of <laughs> maps in your packet that are all the places in the city that show um, where 
primary, what we kind of are calling the primary commercial corridor versus the secondary commercial corridor. And so here's just two examples, and we can toggle through all those maps if you'd like um, up on the screen, but I just wanted to show two more for the public than anything. So here at 145th and Bothell Way, you'll see in the, the crosshatched uh, there on um, Bothell Way, you'll see the crosshatch. That's where the primary corridor would be, and also 145th at the bottom. But then you'll see behind on uh, 32nd, and at the top I can't read, 149th, you'll see it's just a single hash, not a cross hash. And that means that that would be the secondary area. So there's a good example of a big block. Uh, it wouldn't be one single project, but it's a big block that um, it could be multiple projects could eventually come in there. And if they were uh, putting the full amount of non-floor, excuse me, floor, ground floor, uh, non-residential or commercial on 32nd, say, that might be really hard to lease up as commercial spaces, commercial uses. Uh, at 75% of frontage. So our, our current thought is that it'd be 60%, so it's a lower amount, and that up to half of that could be live work for the first five years. Remember again about that, staff will report, uh, if that's passed, staff will report then to council, well I suppose commission and council, uh, on, on how that's been used, has, has it been used, how many, you know, how much of that's been used, and then either allow that to sunset as written or potentially extend it if it makes sense to extend it. But that's a good example, I think, on that one particularly of of a back street that would be, I say, from just seeing projects all around the Seattle area, I could see vacant space there for a long time. And we heard from the public they don't want to see vacant space, so that's important to remember. And then over here we have 165th and, and 50th and 5th. And again, you'll see the cross hatch the two directions on the main streets. And then just down, I don't can't even tell what street that would be, 163rd or something, the bottom where it's just a single hash or even above 165th. You see how 165th changes character. On the west side, it's less, it's mm -hmm. not as big of arterial as it is on the east side. And those are both dead ends at the freeway. Right, so. that's exactly why. So that's just, and, and if you want, we can toggle through more of these maps. Uh, we have them, or you may have them, you may have already seen them in your packet, but I wanted to make sure the public at least could see what, what this, an example of what we're talking about. So at this point, um, you have the draft code revisions um, in your packet, and um, we are looking for any suggested kind of final revisions that we could bring back to the public hearing currently scheduled for the 2nd of November. Thank you. You, you may ask your question. <laughs> um, clarifying question, I think. I read them correctly. On the maps, appreciate all the work that you all did to look into our concerns and appreciate the, the solution that's come back. Um, I believe you used the terms principal and minor arterials, mm -hmm. and on the maps there are collector mm -hmm. arterials. Mm -hmm. Where do those go? Yeah, so, oops, sorry. So the primary, uh, principal and minor, which is funny that that's the next one in the list because minor sounds lower, but that's just how your map reads. Principal and minor are the two top arterials, and then collector and other things are below. Okay. So what we're, basically what we're saying is for principal and minor arterials, that's primary corridors that would require the 75% uh, GFC and the 60% transparency. And any other street, whether it's a collector arterial or whatever, that's zoned commercial would have the lower requirement. So a collector, collector arterial is, lower. is smaller? Mm -hmm. Okay. That's, it, doesn't that's sound, it doesn't sound <laughs> like it, but it Intuitively it doesn't work that way. Okay. <laughs> so, so I, yeah, I, that's a good clarification though. Um, I'm not sure the maps capture that. Oh. Uh, um, and so that might be a point of 
just clarification from the commission as well. So, for example, I'm looking at like the 185th station area map, um, and and it identifies the collector arterial. It's in purple. Um, it's on 10th, and I believe we have that depicted as the primary commercial corridor. Oh, okay, so that might be a mistake. So I think as we went through, yeah, so the mapping, I think, captured everything that had the word arterial in it. Oh, oh, yeah. No. And um, so that'd yeah. be a question, are those appropriate classifications as well, you know, the collectors to be included in that primary commercial or if those should be secondary? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I have to go through this. Um, and, you know, as I'm flipping through this, too, for example, like 165th in Ridgecrest, um, I think if you toggle back a couple, um, <clears throat> we didn't have, I didn't put any more examples okay. in the PowerPoint. But yeah, so the 165th Street at the Ridgecrest, kind of the heart of the Ridgecrest neighborhood there, 165th is designated a collector arterial there. And so that'd be saying then that, you know, if we said collector arterial is not a primary commercial frontage, then the crosshatch on the right would be kind of the lesser standard. So are you saying, Andrew, that the east of 5th is only a collector arterial? Correct. But west of 5th is even a lower level arterial, it, isn't it? And not even arterial, right? It's just because of dead ends? It's just in Right, other. yeah. It's just okay. listed as other. All right. All right. So it's probably yeah, uh, um, some type of local access okay. or lower designation. So, our, so what we brought to you was the top two levels of arterial, and apparently middle minor mistake in showing um, the top three on the map, not expressly intending that the third level be included, but that is ultimately, you know, something you can consider if you'd like. We were trying to address the places that were the, the highest level um, arterials, but that's negotiable. I guess related to that, so could we just choose to is there a way to disassociate the what we're calling the primary and secondary commercial from the road type and it's really just the map has the overlay like you have it and that that's what determines it rather than getting into the trying to decipher what type of road it is it's just that intersection makes sense for those points to be that it you know it was something we discussed earlier and um the reason we veered from it, I, I, this is, so this isn't a yes or a no answer. This is a, sharing our math, <laughs> showing our work. Why did we get to that? Two or three reasons. One is the referring to the types of arterials, they change over time, potentially, especially as streets are continued or in the transit areas and the town center area when you when streets are built out with development or, or city investment. Um, so that recognizes the living nature of the transportation system that there could be 
tomorrow's arterial isn't there yet, you know, whatever. Um, that's one thing. Another thing was we weren't sure that you wanted to go into a mapping exercise that then could, once you look at all the maps, somebody say, oh, well, that street's not so great as this street. And we, we're not sure we wanted to lead you there, but that's your decision if you'd like to go there. But we weren't sure we wanted to lead you there because because there are some vagaries associated with some of these locations. So we that's that explains why we offered the top two level as the most primary and then the less lesser below that. But again, I mean, it is a, it is a process of decision-making still. I think what I'm seeing, though, is that there are not, I'm seeing primarily, I'm just going to go with colors, yellow, primary, and collector in the mapping. So so what we're understanding now is that the purples, the collectors were accidentally coded as being the higher level, correct? And we're discussing whether or not we want that to be the case. I, yeah, I guess there's some inconsistency on our team. Um, I think as we were mapping it, we just captured everything listed arterial. Okay. Um, because I think if you look at Aurora 185th to 175th, mm -hmm. that's a good space that makes the point that the collector arterials are important in this conversation. Um, it's on page 60 for those of us scrolling along. Um, because that brings the ground floor retail in from Aurora, right? And around into a more, you know, most likely pedestrian friendly area. This might be an unusual situation, but that was the one that caught my eye as, is making the most sense. And yeah, and I'm it. also looking at like, um, and maybe this is what you were referring to, like on 200th, for example, 200th in Aurora. So where 200th crosses in front of the Aurora Transit Center is designated a collector arterial Currently, it runs along the backside of like where Costco is, but that's another example. It's a collector arterial, so it'd be captured in that higher designation. Um, you know, if that someday, if the the transit center were to redevelop, arguably across the street from the park and the lake, that'd be a prime location potentially right. for that higher level of commercial standard. So that means we could include, if you wanted to recommend, we could include the collectors as well, as opposed to primary and only primary. And I'm saying primary is not the right word. Principal and minor, we could add yeah. collector theoretically. Um, in that case that we showed in the PowerPoint of the street that's behind 32nd, I think it was, that's not even a collector, I don't think. It's just a side street, right? Right. Yeah. Very big difference, I think, between the, like that 32nd and the one that we just looked at at 200. Yeah. Okay. And, and if you zoom, you know, we don't have a citywide map here or included in the packet, but if you looked at the citywide map, kind of weaving all of these arterials together, there's some, you know, they're logically laid out in a way, you know, it's all about carrying traffic volumes, but you know, you're looking at like 200th is connecting to other arterials. And so there's some, uh, again, a, kind of a logical uh, progression to those street classifications. And so just something for consideration. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Yes, Commissioner Moser. So I guess related to that question about frontage, so Andrew, I apologize, I can't remember. Isn't there, don't we have a, um, a standard about like if you have a through block project that you have to provide like a, a pathway from block to block? Yes, um, and I don't know exactly the, ter the verbiage. It's like a certain distance and then yeah, when you're, the really the key there is that you're fronting on the right of way on both block faces. Should we have a really, okay, that, that was what I thought. So related to that, should we have a provision in there that, in particular, I'm thinking of Aurora, like should we have a provision that if you provide that through block, some of that frontage could return to be not facing Aurora so that you'd actually have businesses, in particular if you want restaurants and stuff so you can sit outside that aren't on the busy street. And my understanding is that connection would become um, Within, that would end up being within the secondary, so that would have the lower level of required, but it'd have some required. If they, because usually that's like a pedestrian path, though, right? Those through block kind of connections. Oh, that's true. Um, I'm just assuming that they're going to also want to locate their driveway and their fire lane, and it ends up being kind of a okay. low scale kind of street. But in that instance, so. through like administrative design review, could we lessen the requirement on Aurora then? Like if you like wanted to put like your building entry on Aurora, but put like restaurants on the side. Like, do we allow that kind of yeah, trading? Yeah, we can look okay. at the departure, kind of all things being equal, kind of look at that as a trade-off through that administrative design review okay. process. Anybody else? Yes, Commissioner Moser. So uh, I guess the other one I have is, so we give them the option of restaurant ready. Um, and my worry is that if you don't plan for a restaurant, that if we build a ground floor commercial space, it won't ever become one. Because when you get into the mechanical code and fire code, there's a lot of limitations as to where exhaust can go. So is there a way we can tell them not to make a restaurant ready, but they have to prove that there's a pathway to provide exhaust in the future? Just, you know, from like half of the retail spaces or something like that. Like they don't have to provide it, but like if you popped like an exhaust out of the side yeah. of the building, like you wouldn't conflict with. Well, we do include, uh, there are a few, I have to find the, the code language, um, but they don't just uh, come in and say, oh, that'll be a restaurant and get 10, 10 feet, assuming they need the bonus. It actually says, including, and off the top of my head, I'm not gonna remember what they are. I think um, Andrew's accessing it faster than I can. Um, there's a few things that have been in the code that we're in a more of a bulleted format, and now we just put them in a sentence. But they're required that they have to show some of those things. So I'm not going to find it. It's, yeah, there, uh, it's a requirement for the grease trap, and then the hood exhaust is the other one yeah. to make sure that you're you're provide you're kind of planning for those things up front to accommodate for the shell permit of a restaurant. But that's when it's called restaurant ready. I was, yes. I was thinking of an instance where you have a building where it's not called restaurant ready. Oh, and right. just permanently, as we're talking about them being around for 75 years, especially if you think of it as a retail or non-residential non with residential above it, like it's pretty immovable. Like I'm, I was, I'm more worried about us getting stuck into a position where everyone outfits things for bookstores. And it, it would permanently prohibit ever putting a restaurant in because you don't have a roof to go up through. So I've been looking at this issue since we've been discussing it. Um, and in Seattle, there's just such a wealth of buildings they've built. So you can kind of go in and go, what does it look like? One of the things I've discovered is 15 feet is pretty high. You know, it's like, wow, 15 feet, that's pretty high. And I've been in 
two or three restaurants in the last two weeks that were in mixed-use buildings. And then and it looks to be 15. I didn't bring out a ruler, but just kind of eyeballing it's 15. It wasn't 18 or 20. And I'm sure they probably didn't originally come in and say, this is going to be a restaurant forever. They just built their required ground floor space. And and there's restaurants all over in these ground floor spaces. So I, I don't know if it's an, I mean, once they have that height, the biggest issue is the height and the storefront system um, and accessibility into the sidewalk and all that, of course. But um, it's usually there's a way to, to work out the venting as long as there's a side that can go out or something. Um, so I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's if it's necessary to require them to show that they can do that up front if they don't have a restaurant in mind. They may not. I've just, I've just run into instances where like it's especially with building modulation. If it's at a certain height and it modulates, like you can't have an exhaust from right. a, a hood no, that's close to that perpendicular surface. Right. Or next, sometimes not next to a window as well. So it's just. I, yeah, I would just add too. If it's a new development and we're looking at it brand new and they're saying we want the added height because we're going to have a restaurant ready space then we would be asking them to show that they're going to be meeting those requirements the one example up in north city we did go through the steps of ensuring that they're showing each of those items on their building plan set just to make sure yeah yeah, yeah i was more concerned about the the height bonus that's not for a restaurant ready one and just getting stuck with a bunch of things that you end up with only coffee shops or something that doesn't have any venting or any kind of comprehensive cooking. Anybody else? Are there questions, are there other questions that you have that you would like answers from us? I think the, the one question I have is the, the biggest issue that was raised this evening was the issue of which arterials we're including. And so um, in order for you to tell us what to bring back to the public hearing, are, are you recommending that we include all three levels of arterial? Um, okay. It was, yes. All right. That was an important little facilitation yes. moment there. I wanted to know if that was, okay. We can easily change that? the draft okay. of the code to include all three uh, mentions, I think, versus the, what did you say? Oh, happy accident, yeah. And then we don't have to change the maps. No, but I think, I think my opinion, and, and certainly <laughs> that's just my opinion, is that it's better to use a term that may change how it's manifest on, on the land than to use maps that then you have to change the maps potentially every year as arterials, you know, change through development. Thank you. Anybody else? Any parting words? Yes. So I have a question not necessarily related to the, this conversation specifically, because this is only about multifamily buildings that get commercial. I mean, if you think, look at the list, like but from the survey, a lot of the responses from people, the neighborhoods that they're talking about, the commercial districts aren't in multifamily buildings. So is there, and, and I know we've leveled out some of the commercial code, and I know we have non-conforming rules and We've got outdoor seating rules. Is there anything else we're doing? Because we have business districts now and people that obviously don't have what people are looking for. So what are we working on other ways to encourage business? Like I think some of them like helping with TI costs or like if you think of if all the Rite Aids and Bartels go out of business shortly, yeah, there's a bunch of buildings. 
Well, one of the issues we shared with you last time we had that list of, of other issues kind of for further discussion, that's kind of phase two kind of, one of them, it doesn't fully address what you said, but it addresses a portion of what you said, was um, residential buildings um, in commercial zones, and is it, are there barriers in the codes to, trend, to converting them from residential to uh, commercial? Because sometimes in, in, um, these re in these commercial zones that have been zoned for the future, they still include vestigial kind of res residential buildings. And um, there are barriers in place, not as many as some cities have. You're, you're actually zoned pretty well for that. But there's still a couple things related to parking and some other things. So that's one of the issues that we want to work on in the sort of next phase. I don't know if there's a set of issues related to, like you say, old <laughs> an old Rite Aid or whatever. Uh, and how that converts. I mean, it is a commercial building, so usually what happens, <clears throat> just you can just see this regionally, is something else comes into that exact space for a while, like 10 years or something, and then eventually the land value is so high that they, you know, fully redevelop. Uh, but there's usually an interim reuse for a while. So there are a couple of things that we can do to your question of, you know, what can we do to encourage. Um, this commission or previous members of the commission or previous iteration, some of you were here, uh, did uh, recommend an action that council took to um, adopt uh, um, adaptive reuse code. So really recognizing some cases we've got a building, we have a owner who wants a commercial use in it, we have a commercial use that wants to go in it, but our code says you kind of have to like wipe the site clean and put a new building in a new location, there'll be room for the parking, et cetera. So, the adaptive reuse measure uh, that went into effect gets us one step closer to some of those buildings that are now non-conforming um, uh, and where redevelopment of commercial space isn't financially feasible, but reuse of that existing building is, right? Um, especially for those newer <laughs> startup or lower capital non-chain users. There's a next step that we've identified um, on a particular site uh, where um, at staff level, we have been talking about whether to reconsider those frontage improvements that are currently triggered at if you're investing more than 50% of the value of the building. And in this case, I'm talking a building that's probably worth $0 and all the values in the land, and they're going to put in $20,000 maybe to bring a restaurant into the space. That triggers them to have to put in about $300,000 worth of sidewalk. <laughs> That makes it a no-go, obviously. They don't. They have a $20,000 budget with $0 for sidewalk. They don't have a $320,000 budget. So um, that is something that we at, at staff uh, know that we need to bring forward, and we haven't sort of found a place on the work plan <laughs> to do that yet. Um, but the other thing is the, um, uh, the impact fee exemption for commercial use. So that's something that we just, as Kendra, Ryland mentioned it's been a long week because we were just here on Monday night talking about that with council, um, and that was uh, kind of a marathon meeting. So, um, but we did mention that we've talked about that in this process as well, and it's something that has come up um, as a way to, uh, you know, address the unaffordability of new commercial space, um, and that you know again just sort of aligning the fee policies with previously stated policy goals in the city. So that's, that is something that uh, is not included in this PowerPoint and well, not explicitly, but it's something that we've heard and has been um, input into that process. So we're going to continue to kind of encourage council to consider that, um, uh, especially for those, um, um, you know, especially for the mixed use development where it just really is intended to 
reduce trips and automobile orientation by having uses and residences in the same place, right? But, um, but the question came up of standalone and whether it makes sense to have that exemption be available for standalone commercial uses as well. I think you're making the good point that there are these cases and these examples on this list right here that people really love, um, and these are not necessarily mixed-use environments. So definitely um, those are just a few of the things, I guess, that come to mind in terms of what can we do. And in Washington State, we're very limited in our tools uh, in terms of incentives, right? So um, those are the things we kind of have uh, that we've discussed so far. Thank you. Yes, Commissioner Brinson. Tiny comments. Um, it just occurred to me the language related to the five-year live-work thing of why I was confused, so I thought it would offer clarifying language. I think if we say for buildings developed or buildings permitted in the first five years, that would make it a lot clearer to folks as we're sort of working through that. Did, let's, let me read the language as it's written to see if that is doing it or not. It just says four or five years. Right, we get so close to it that after a while we don't. It sounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally That's why I was like, oh, this is what the, <laughs> these so are the words I'm missing. Says, it currently says, um, when it's talking about the uses that are allowed, and then it says residential, it is at 20.40.465. So it says residential uses, uh, dwelling units are not allowed, blah, blah, blah. Then it says, except for a period ending January 1st, 2029. The city may issue permits for live-work residential units that cumulatively occupy no more than 50% of the required ground floor non-residential space abutting streets not designated and will add the other principal or minor arterials. The code is clear. The PowerPoint shorthand yes. is not. Yeah. That's yes. so, so maybe when you go to yes. city council sort of adding that yeah. in there, yes, that's exactly. where I was focused. Good point. Thank you for pointing that out. I think your comments initially are what triggered that clarification in the code language. <laughs> Vice Chair Ramachandri. Just one, one question. Some, and it could be a misconception, but when you're talking about areas that can still be reused in terms of buildings, I, something juggled my memory. Is there, do you see an intended consequence when we change language from commercial to non-residential? Because in my mind, uh, I've worked with bridges, and we find sometimes underneath the bridge, it, it's non-residential. So you find that the paint that we use there, if it has lead content, a certain lead content, it's permissible, but non-permissible in residential areas. So when we call it non-residential, are they things that we might trigger that probably were not intended. Hmm. <laughs> That's a good question. It's like, what do we, do we know what we don't know? <laughs> um, the, yeah, well, I'm not sure that I can give you a global answer to that. Yeah, so you'll find for uh, non-residential, the parts per million of lead within, even within the soil mm -hmm. is more than what you'd find in a residential area. Right, exactly. So it's, what are we triggering? What are we telling a developer, especially when they are cleaning up, and we call that area non-residential, non are we limiting how they can clean up because it's non-residential? So that's what's going on in my mind. Well, that specific comment I can, have, I can respond to. That, so this is the space that's required at the ground floor of the building. So they're not, um, the um, use of the overall site 
when it's going through its permitting process is not not non-residential. It's I don't know what I guess it's both multifamily and different commercial uses. Uh, I don't know exactly how it works in this permitting system, but but it wouldn't be considered a residential only project because it will have non-residential or commercial components. Um, so we're really just talking about that box that's required that 15 feet tall and 30 feet deep at the at the um, property line um, and what uses are allowed in that box and why we thought that non-residential made sense was that there are some uses that aren't really commercial like somebody might want to have a library or maybe it's a nonprofit organization or there's just a club a private club or something there are things that that are just slightly beyond purely commercial that's why it's a, it's a bit of a technicality, but I don't think it would trigger um, different uh, requirements for, say, treatment. Like, you know, a lot of the things in cities like Shoreline that uh, trigger cleanups is like um, dry cleaners. You know, dry cleaners are a perpetual issue with contaminated soils or gas stations or, or other things. And so they need to know what are they cleaning up to? What standard are they cleaning up to? Exactly what you're saying. Are they cleaning to residential or commercial? Right, and that, I don't know the answer to that, but it, this issue would not, it's, it's really the tail of the dog. I mean, the dog is it's a multifamily building. It could be a very large multifamily building with hundreds of units. This relatively small amount of non-residential slash commercial space is not gonna determine that. It's gonna be, whoever makes that decision, it's probably ecology at our, you know, the state level is probably gonna look and say, no, you need to meet residential standards because you've got what, 300 people living here or whatever. Thank you. All right. Anybody else? So we have a little bit of cleanup to do and bring it back for a presentation okay. on the second. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for all your hard work. Thank you. All right, we are moving on to our second study item, which is the transit bus bases and individual transportation and taxi facilities development code amendments. <laughs> Surprise. Uh, thanks for your patience. I'm Kate Lee. I'm a planner with the Planning and Community Development Department here to present this item, which is a bit of a mouthful, so appreciate the introduction there. 
Um, the agenda for this presentation is shown on the slide. I'll go over some background and then get into some discussion items, go over the public involvement, next steps, and a tentative project schedule. Because transit bus bases and individual transportation and taxi facilities are incompatible with the city's vision for several areas in the city as set forth in the comprehensive plan, staff recommended an enactment of a moratorium. On July 17th, city council unanimously adopted ordinance number 991, which enacted an emergency six month moratorium that prohibited the city from accepting, processing, and or approving all applications or permits for any transit bus bases or individual taxi, individual transportation and taxi facilities. On August 14th, the city council held a public hearing on this ordinance. It was required to be held within 60 days of the adoption of the ordinance. In September of this year, Staff conducted research into other cities in King County and how they treat these two uses. So the current definition for a transit base in the Shoreline Municipal Code or the SMC is an establishment for the storage, dispatch, repair, and maintenance of coaches, light rail trains, and other vehicles of a public transit system. There is no definition of individual transportation and taxi facilities in the SMC. The SMC permits transit bus spaces to be located in 14 of the city's 21 zoning districts subject to a special use permit. Special use permits are a quasi-judicial land use action with a public hearing and a decision from the hearing examiner. A special use permit may be granted by the city only if the applicant demonstrates that all eight of the decision criteria are met. The SMC permits individual transportation and taxi facilities in four of the city's zoning districts, either outright or subject to a conditional use permit. Depending on the zone, conditional use permits are an administrative decision that require public notice, but not a public meeting or public hearing unless appealed. A conditional use permit may be granted by the city only if the applicant demonstrates that it meets all eight of the criteria in the SMC. There are two facilities operating in the city of Shoreline that meet the definition of transit bus base, and there are no facilities in the, operating in the city that are considered individual transportation and taxi facilities. The two bus bases are shown in an aerial map on this slide. The King County Metro North Base is located and operating in the Meridian Park neighborhood, situated just west of I-5, where North 165th Street dead ends. The property consists of six separate parcels, totaling 12.53 acres. Selection and development of this site took most of the 1980s. In 1987, construction began, and in 1990, the bus base became operational. Shoreline was incorporated in 1995. Most of the site is zoned R6, but one of the parcels is zoned R18, and the comprehensive plan land use designation for the entire site is public facilities. The other transit base operating is in the Ridgecrest neighborhood at the southwest corner of 5th Ave Northeast and Northeast 165th Street. 
It is being used as an access van storage repair and dispatch site. The property consists of one 2.58 acre parcel. The site was originally developed in the 1950s and at various points was a grocery store and a bingo hall. The site is zoned community business with the comprehensive plan land use designation of mixed use two. Staff conducted research into other jurisdictions in King County that have bus bases, um, looking at the development code regulations as well as approval of the specific sites. Staff also researched individual transportation and taxi facilities. The sites of the other King County Metro bus bases researched by staff are within light or heavy industrial areas with proximity to aerial arterial roads intended for heavy trucking use. In addition to shoreline, staff identified large bus bases in the cities of Bellevue, Kent, sorry, Bellevue, Seattle, and Tukwila, and access van sites in the city, cities of Bellevue, Kent, and Seattle, and a van pool site in Redmond. In attachment A to the staff report, there's further detail. Shown on this slide are the locations in the city of Seattle which are an industrial zone land in the Soto area and in the South Park neighborhood. In terms of how these two uses are regulated by other cities in King County with these uses, most of them separate out the two uses um, and one groups them together. The two uses are mostly allowed in heavier commercial zoning districts and or industrial zoning districts. The individual transportation and taxi facilities use tends to be allowed in commercial um, districts and industrial districts with a more streamlined approval process, meaning permitted by right or an administrative conditional use approval process, so no public hearing. While the bus space use tends to be allowed in fewer commercial and zoning, fewer commercial districts and industrial districts, often with a more rigorous review process, such as a public hearing. The approval process varies from, a, from an administrative approval to a public hearing before the hearing examiner or city council. When a land use approval is required as a conditional use or special use, there are fairly standard decision criteria across the city's research for those approvals. It's also common that of the city's research to have unique criteria beyond um, these common standard criteria, and those are also detailed in the staff report and attachment A. The common factors in all the decision, decision criteria are ensuring consistency with the comprehensive plan and adopted codes, as well as proximity to or provision of adequate public facilities such, such as streets and utilities, and also minimizing or eliminating impacts to surrounding properties. So um, we did in the staff report outline some recommendations. We didn't present any um, formal preliminary code language, but do have some recommendations and have some questions and are seeking feedback from the commission on these items. Um, both the North Base and the Access Van site include vehicle storage, vehicle dispatch, and vehicle repair and maintenance. 
these same elements minus perhaps the repair or maintenance are also present with individual transportation and taxi facilities. Staff recommends changing and renaming the uses according to the size of the vehicles stored, repaired, dispatched at the site, rather than differentiating the uses based on public versus private ownership or operation. Um, we're making this recommendation because there's really no functional difference in the use between being privately or publicly owned or operated. Rather, the difference is in the size of the two vehicles that are stored, repaired, and maintained. So those larger fleet vehicles have more impact in terms of noise and odor and wear on roadways. So we're recommending the use names be fleet-based major to, to describe those that are storing repairing and dispatching vehicles equal to or greater than 30 feet long, and fleet-based minor to describe those with vehicles less than 30 feet long. In the staff report, it does list out the various standard sizes of King County Metro's fleet, um, and staff recommends the definitions listed on this slide and does have a, some questions for commission, which are also in the staff report. Um, the research of other jurisdictions showed that these uses are general, generally allowed in heavier commercial and industrial zones where streets are intended for heavier truck traffic. Shoreline is uh, a bit unique in that we don't have any industrial zoned land. That's due to our history as a, a bedroom community for, for Seattle metro area. Um, our most intense commercial district is mixed business and followed by community business. However, there are certain community business areas where fleet bases are not appropriate and would be inconsistent with the comprehensive plan vision for those areas or other adopted visioning plans. Property zone CB along a state or community business along a state highway like Ballinger Way or Northeast 145th Street, those are more appropriately positioned due to the nature of a state road to accommodate a fleet base. So for both uses, staff recommends allowing them in the mixed business zone, the community business zone, but only if the site has frontage on a state highway or in the R4 through R48 zones where the property is a minimum size, the use is consistent with the comprehensive plan and the site has frontage and access to a limited access highway. All of the uses will be subject to additional criteria the provision related to the, resi the residential zones, the R4 through R48, that's to recognize the existing operation of the, the north base. Um, staff recommends the uses be allowed in the zoning districts listed on this slide and has a question for the commission. Um, we didn't have enough time to get these maps in the in the packet that went out, but um, they're in this presentation. I can also uh, share those along or send those along for closer viewing, but this shows the areas of the city that staff recommends the uses be allowed. Specifically, this shows the mixed business zone properties along or near the Aurora Ave North corridor. Um, so on the... Um, I guess on the left-hand side of the screen is North Aurora, and on the right side of the screen is South Aurora. As you can see, we've left out Shoreline Place or Aurora Square CRE. Um, because it has a planned action, that planned action does not envision this use in that planned action, um, so that property is not included. 
So this shows um, the CB zone properties with frontage on a state road. Um, so in the, the left-hand side is the Ballinger area, and on the right-hand side is the southeast part of the city, northeast 145th Street. And so um, we excluded the area along northeast 145th Street and 15th Avenue Northeast because that will be rezoned in 2033 by the city to MUR 70. So this is not the type of use that we would envision in the future for an area like that. That should be um, dense, urban, walkable, et cetera. And finally, this map, it shows the area, areas of the city where staff recommends, um, uh, it specifically shows the north base, the transit, the current operating transit bus base. So this is our, R4 through R48 zone property that is larger than 10 acres. The use is consistent with the comprehensive plan since the, the designation of this site is public facilities and the site has frontage and access to a limited access highway, which is I-5. Um, the research of other jurisdictions shows that the bus base use is mostly allowed as a permitted use with no additional criteria in the industrial zone and is allowed in commercial zones as a conditional use. There are exceptions to that, such as in King County, where it's allowed as a special use in many zoning districts, and Tukwila, where it's only allowed subject to approval by the city council. The research of other jurisdictions shows that the individual transportation and taxi facilities use is mostly allowed as a permitted use with no additional criteria, but only in more intense commercial zones. Staff recommends that the fleet-based major use be permitted in NB and CB zones as a special use. Again, since we don't have an industrial zoning district, we feel it's important to place some sort of approval process where we can set a framework for, for decision criteria and approval. Um, and allowed as a special use in R4 through R48 when it meets those minimum um, criteria I mentioned before. Staff recommends that the fleet-based minor use be permitted in the MB zone and CB zone as conditional uses. So this is uh, administrative level approval, but there is public notice and public input. There's just no public hearing uh, before the hearing examiner. And also allowed as a special use and R4 through R48. Um, again, subject to those criteria I mentioned before, the minimum acreage and access to I-5 or another limited access facility. The use is not appropriate in the TC1 or MUR70 zone, as this is a very auto-oriented use and um, that's contrary to the underlying vision. Um, so uh, we propose striking that from the current code and staff recommends the uses be allowed per the processes listed on this slide and again has a question for the commission. In the, in the Shoreline Municipal Code, we already have decision criteria for both special uses and conditional uses. Um, those are outlined in attachment A, but uh, Based on our analysis, it does seem appropriate to add more specific decision criteria to address the unique nature of fleet bases to make sure that, that impacts on surrounding neighborhoods and properties are being appropriately mitigated. 
So staff recommends adding the following additional conditional use and special use criteria for both major and minor fleet-based bus uses, uh, or fleet-based uses. I won't um, read through, the, through all of these, but they go over what we talked about before in terms of um, only allowed in CB if it has frontage on a state highway. It's allowed in R4 through R48, subject to some criteria. Um, it's, would not be, it would not be allowed in areas of the city where it's contrary to a vision plan that we have. Um, and then all of the other criteria are really things meant to um, lessen impact on surrounding properties. And uh, again, we're making a recommendation that um, these criteria be added or considered, um, could be wordsmithed or um, looked into a little further. And we have a question for you on that as, as well. In terms of public engagement, um, at the city council public hearing on August 14th, there were two public comments provided by the property owner of the access van site and King County Metro. In their comments, they were concerned about the moratorium that we placed and the ability to locate on another site in Shoreline. They're providing a very important service for the community with the access van, so they expressed concerns about um, being able to continue their operations. City staff and King County Metro staff met on September 12th to discuss Metro siting needs, the research we'd done so far, and next steps in working together to find an appropriate location for an access van site. So with direction received this evening, staff will prepare draft code amendments and bring them back tentatively for public hearing on November 16th or as otherwise directed. Um, here's a tentative schedule. Um, we would like you to advise if you would like this back as a study item on November 2nd. Um, and then a public hearing on the 16th or moving directly to a public hearing on November 16th. And that's all that I have for you tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, open for discussion. Who would like to start? Vice Chair Ramachandran. I have a couple of questions. Um, where we show, the area where we show access vans, is that the same place where now I see school buses also, or are those two different places? Uh, the, that's a different site. Yeah, at, the, at this site, it's exclusively for access vans, as far, uh, as, far as I know. Um, okay. there, there is a, a school district uh, bus facility in the city also, but that's a, that's a different use. It's itemized as a different use in our code. Um, So that was going to be my other question. How, how, the school, how when we talk of school buses, how are we going to, in other words, when we look at areas where the school buses are, are we planning also on making changes to those? Since you're talking of vehicle lengths, we said if the vehicle is 30 feet or 40 feet, you are there. Then you look at the sizes of the buses. Why are those different? It's, I mean, it's a, it's a fair point. I mean, the, the scope of, of the pro yeah, you can chime in, Andrew, but um, 
the direction we've gotten from city council is that we do not want to extend the six-month moratorium that we want to have adopted regulations that deal specifically with the issue in front of us which is which is uh, uh, bus fleet bases uh, specifically not not related to the school or school district yeah I would just add to um, and just kind of building on what Kate said uh, the you know that's I think part of it was kind of defining that scope, um, but then also the the transit bases. There's sort of a clean break there, just in terms of like the you know it's a public transit service versus the school bus function and purpose for that, and so I think that was sort of another defining feature, just in terms of the function. Uh, and being that it is already the school bus facility is already defined separately within the city's code there's already a framework to allow those types of uses so if the school district did either want to expand or relocate or something they'd still this isn't taking anything off of the table for them but it's defining really and and clarifying where these other types of transit uses are which can be public, can be private, can be contracted, uh, any number of certain uh, methods or functions. Yeah, then the second question is um, looking at the facility that King County Metro has now for the bus space, if they were to move it, would we be able to provide them the same size of property along Aurora, for example? You're asking about the access van site? Or yeah. you're asking about the north base? The north base. I, I don't think there's, that's a unique property that was developed prior to our incorporation when it was, you know, unincorporated King County and totally different context than so, what we're in now. So that wouldn't be impacted at all? The operations, they would not be impacted by this regulation then? Correct. Um, the, the way, we're proposing it be framed um, is that it continues it would continue to be allowed as a special use in the r4 through r48 zoning districts provided it's consistent with our visioning documents with the comprehensive plan so in the comprehensive plan we have a designation called public facilities that's intended for these types of large public facility uses and so in that case um, someone if they wanted to expand that in any way someone would have to come in an applicant would have to come in request a change to the comprehensive plan and then there's a certain level of analysis and study and public input that goes into that um, but what this framework does is it continues to allow them to operate as a special use at the current site um, expansion would be um, going through a, a number of public processes okay thank you Anybody else? Commissioner Callahan. Um, the way you've described it, though, that the access van site would not be um, permitted. Is that right? Because it's not uh, close enough to a, a state road. Correct. Yeah. Um, great. Thank you. Anybody else? Uh, Vice Chair Romajan? question uh, why didn't we say primary arterial 
principal arterial for that matter instead of state route? I think part of it was just looking at the kind of the level of uh, traffic that you would expect perhaps a type of use like this to be needing and you know the number of trips and kind of trying to focus it to locations where you already have the roadway to accommodate the volume of traffic you would anticipate and so um, yeah I mean that I think that was maybe one option on the table as we were looking at different things but um, being that we have multiple state roads going through the city I think and and it kind of lined up nicely with um, some of the zoning as well and just locationally um, and those state roads are still there is a designation in the code it does believe they're all designated as principal arterial so there is sort of that there's the state highway designation and then there's our functional classification but yeah it's a valid question I'll I'll take a look at that I have a I have a just a, a hunch that probably everything that's listed as a principal arterial is probably also a state highway but I will I will look into that Commissioner Mosier is thinking. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I mean, I guess I'm somewhat challenged by the topic in general because we don't have, again, to our previous conversation, we don't have a lot of great business areas. And so we're saying that in these business areas that are along Aurora, which frankly needs improvement in its, its you know, quality, this takes it, actually takes it down a notch, in my opinion. So I, I, mean, I don't know if we can. I'd rather not have a bus base personally. I mean, I, I, I the the access buses are discounted from that because that is actually a function that we need. But like, if you think of a private bus fleet, I'm a little concerned about. I mean, Aurora is already self storage and car dealerships, and so we're kind of cementing that idea that that this is that kind of place, and it it kind of almost undoes the effort of Shoreline Place is trying to. I mean, it's off of Aurora, but you know, it's it's still connected to Aurora in some ways. So, so we're saying like the town center is the center, but from there, like it it can go, it can devolve again, so to speak. It's it's important too. So these uses are already permitted in these locations, mm -hmm. and so what these amendments really are targeted to do right now, it's like these uses are allowed almost citywide, which is really shocking when you think about it. And so this is really narrowing the scope pretty significantly. Okay. Um, but yeah, you raise a valid point. It, um, but also too, it's important to remember just because you zone to allow something doesn't mean that it's going to be. Um, and so this, is, I don't know if that's helpful at all, yeah. but just. Yeah, I just have my pessimist hat on today. So that's I agree helpful. with you. you. Anybody else? I, I um, I like the I like the verbiage the fleet major and fleet minor or fleet base major and fleet base minor and the definition I think that makes sense to me um, can you reassure me that there is specific language for odor uh, mitigation in these facilities 
I, I think there is language, but if there's not, we can add uh, language about odor into the decision criteria for these yes. uses. Please, yes. Go ahead, Vice Chair Ramachandji. Uh, that was a good one, uh, audits. Uh, you find, in the, really the question is, giving them the same maintenance uh, requirements that you give the major facilities. So you'll find that when you do your oil change and how that oil is managed and the kind of filters that you have on site and how it's treated mm -hmm. and how order is managed is a big deal, so yes. So on Aurora, to Commissioner Moja's question, it's probably not a nice place to have that. All right. Um, anybody else have any comments? I just, uh, out of curiosity, have we heard like there's any interest of um, certain this type of use uh, like in the talk or being proposed that there will be future ones just the access van site um, is going to need to find a new site doesn't mean that it has to be in the city of shoreline but we are trying to provide a framework where there's some availability so it's not like there are new interests that may be in need to happen in shoreline. No. Got it. Thank you. Good. All right. Everybody, do you do you uh, all agree with the staff recommendations? Yeah, one one more question. And this has to do with the actual users of access buses. Uh, did we get a chance? Did you staff have a chance to communicate and understand what their needs are in terms of operations if uh, the bus facilities were to move elsewhere or not be available altogether uh, we've been we've been working with King County Metro staff on what their siting needs are um, we've not we've not done any outreach to users of the access van program. This will be a location for storage, repair, and dispatch. So um, they have this, they would be looking for another location in North King County. So they have the South, South Park base in Seattle. They have a, uh, a base in Kent. They have one in Bellevue on the east side. So they're looking for a place to locate in North King County. Yeah, my concern really is if it moves, and they can't provide the service altogether. So, uh, if we can, if they can still provide the service, absolutely no question, move it. However, if the response is we cannot find another place to, for such storage, and therefore the service goes away, uh, somehow we need to figure out how to accommodate the, the users of of that service once they leave. So we need to think about the user also. Yeah, we we haven't heard anything along those lines from King County Metro and the cities working closely with them and their team just in terms of what this could mean for their existing site and operations and partnering with them to, as Kate said, making sure that we have a solid framework within our code to still allow them within the city, but in a place that makes sense for the shoreline community. Uh, and so they could continue to look for potential sites in shoreline 
or elsewhere in North King County, but I haven't heard anything from them that they would look to end any type yeah. of operation. Yeah, the majority of the users of Access Pass have all kinds of disabilities, so mm -hmm. that would be um, a barrier for them if that service goes away. Um, do you all think that we need to bring this back on uh, November 2nd for more information, clarifications? I think we're all good. Okay. So come back for a public hearing on the 16th? Is that okay? Yes. Thank you. So with that, yeah, we'd have the draft code amendments and kind of hold, you'd say, hold the hearing at the same meeting then as yes. you're seeing the first draft of code amendments. Okay. And then would be do, you, do you have, you think you got answers to all of your questions kind of lined out throughout the report? I think well, we hit I, on I, yeah, I think the commission brought up items they were interested in. Um, and if there's, yeah, no other questions or um, items you'd like me to come back with, I think I have what I need. Wonderful. All right, thank you so much. Good job, you guys. All right. Well, here we are, up to unfinished business. Is there any unfinished business today? How about new business? Reports. And the agenda for the next meeting then, please. Yeah, so on November 2nd, uh, the only agenda item so far is the bringing back the ground floor commercial uh, code for the public hearing and potential recommendation. Okay. All right, any last words? All right. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Well, best of luck to you and happy health. <laughs> and thank you for that information. Thank you. <laughs> it, it just makes it more urgent than that, I guess, everyone else. The rest else, of us um, comes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> We're all on notice. <laughs> um, thank you. We are adjourned. <laughs>